Thank you, Sandy. Boys and girls, you can head out to Story Keepers and to Nursery. kids are heading out, let me pray. Let's uh, join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these uh, accounts of Jesus' post-resurrection. We pray that as uh, he provides words for us in different contexts, different concerns, different situations, as he spoke after his resurrection, that as we uh, hear him speak here, that these would these words would minister deeply to our hearts and minds and souls this morning. Wherever uh, we find ourselves in our journey of faith, whatever questions we might have, whatever doubts, whatever struggles, whatever kind of week we've had, whatever kind of week we're going into, minister to us now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I think back over my life uh, so far, I can think of a, a few things of which I've been afraid at times. I've experienced the fear of rejection, I've had financial fears hit me on a number of occasions. I've feared for the well-being or safety of family members when I've not been with them at times. I've also at past at times feared for my own physical safety. Growing up in Belfast during the Troubles, if I missed the school bus, I had to walk up this road called Duncairn Gardens. On one side of the road lived the Loyalists or the, the Protestants. The other side were the Catholics or the Nationalists. You're easily identified by your school uniform as to which side of the community you were from. And so more often than not, you had to be ready uh, to run for fear of being hit by rocks or stones being thrown at you from the other side of the road. This was not playful, by the way. This was, uh, this was serious. I don't remember any serious injuries, but I was hit on occasion. And so each time I walked that road, there was a legitimate fear. I imagine that all of us could list uh, some things we've been afraid of in the past and also perhaps things of which we continue to fear in the present. But I'm also guessing that at least, at least for the vast majority of us, with all the things that we've ever been afraid of, we probably wouldn't say that one of the things we lie awake fearing has been angels. Large part that's because we've been anesthetized by television and the film industry to see angels as, well, frankly, not that different from you and me. Whether it was Michael Landon in Highway to Heaven, or Della Reese as Tess in Touched by an Angel, or Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it might just be me, but they don't really seem that fearful. However, when you open up the Bible, it's a very different story. More often than not, when angels show up, the first thing they say to people is, don't be afraid. And that, as we're going to say, see, is what we find in this passage that we're looking at this morning. We're in the midst of this Eastertide sermon series we've called the final or the, the real last words of Jesus, which seeks to make sure that we realize that when we speak of the last words of Jesus, as often referred to as the words he spoke on the cross, they weren't really his last words. And the reason they weren't his last words was because after Jesus died, he rose again and walked this earth for 40 days before ascending back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, which is where he currently is. But during those 40 days, he said some very significant things. 
Last week we looked at Jesus' word to a seeker, to Mary Magdalene in the garden where Jesus' tomb was located. This week we're looking at a word to the fearful. Interesting, when you look at this passage through the lens of fear, how often the word fear or afraid actually comes up. This morning I'm going to save our sermon in a sentence for a little later, uh, but here's what we're going to look at uh, at the passage in, in three parts this morning. First of all, the justifiably fearful. Secondly, the unnecessarily fearful. And then thirdly, the answer to all our fears. So first of all, the justifiably fearful. Look at verses 1 to 4 again. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Matthew's the only gospel writer to tell us in his resurrection account about a great earthquake occurring. It's possible, according to the Greek, to read verse 2 as saying there had been a violent earthquake, indicating that between Jesus uh, being laid in the tomb and the women arriving at the tomb, at some point this earthquake had happened. Or it could mean that just as the women arrived, an earthquake occurred. Either way, just as with the ominous portents of nature as Jesus was dying on the cross, which Matthew described as darkness in the middle of the day, another earthquake at that point, here the God who is in control of all nature is giving some clues that Jesus' death was no ordinary death. This was one of God's ways of saying to us, I really want you to pay attention right now. And some of the people who were now paying attention were the guards. The end of chapter 27, Matthew had told us that after Jesus' death, the religious leaders of the day had gone to Pilate, the governor of Judea, and told him how Jesus, or, quote, that imposter, as they referred to him, had said that after three days he would rise. Well, apparently, these were the only people talking about Jesus' claim to resurrection immediately after his death, because as I mentioned last week, the disciples and the other followers of Jesus seem to have suffered a serious bout of amnesia regarding the countless promises and claims that Jesus had made that he would rise from the dead. But his enemies had remembered. And the reason they're telling Pilate is because they want the, the tomb made as secure as possible with a 24-hour watch by guards to make sure, in their words, that the disciples do not come and steal his body and then tell the people, oh, he has risen from the dead. So Pilate, people pleaser as he always seems to be, does what they ask, and he mounts a, mounts a guard at the tomb. Well, these guards obviously get a lot more than they were bargaining for. The earthquake strikes, an angel of the Lord comes down from heaven, rolls back the stone, and sits on it. Look again at Matthew's description of the angel. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. Here was an, an angel pretty much unlike any angel you'll see in the movies. Powerful, thunderous, dazzling, luminescent. Just one single angel in the Bible could make a platoon of hardened soldiers quake in their boots for fear, in absolute fear. 
In fact, there's actually some delicious irony, I think, on Matthew's part here. When he writes, they became like dead men, you realize that these living men, supposedly guarding a dead dead man, are the ones who look dead, while the dead man is no longer in the tomb because he's alive. We're going to see the angel speak to the women in a moment, but notice that there's Notice that there's no word from the angel here seeking to address the guards and assuage their fear. And that's probably because theirs was a justifiable fear. The reason that an angel of the Lord created sheer bone-rattling terror was because he was an angel of the Lord. That is a messenger of the holy, awesome, righteous, just, sovereign, powerful God of this universe. And if you're opposed to that God, the Bible says that's a terror and a fear-filled place to be. The whole reason that God's own son Jesus came into this world to die on a cross was ultimately to rescue us from what we deserve for for being so self-centered in our lives and not God-centered, for our rebellion against God, for our apathy towards God, the God who created us. And as such, Jesus' death on the cross satisfied two aspects of God's nature, his wrath and his love. Now, naturally, all of us love the love part of God's nature, but we can start to shift a little awkwardly in our pews when a preacher starts talking about God's wrath. God's wrath, however, is not some kind of crankiness on his part. It's not God losing his temper. It is his settled judicial opposition to evil and injustice in this world. And each of us deserves that wrath because in some way, we have each participated in that evil and injustice. You and I prefer not to think about ourselves as evil people. We like to reserve that for the silence of the lamb, Hannibal lectors of the world. But anytime we act in a self-centered way, anytime we take advantage of others, abuse others, anytime we treat people as anything less than the image of God in which they were created, we participate in sin and evil. And the consequences of that, according to the Bible, is that each one of us have a record on file with God, and it's not a positive one. We're guilty. We deserve his wrath. And someone has to take his wrath for your record so that you really have two options. You can seek to pay the penalty for your record yourself, or you can accept the -the blow-your-mind-over-the-top generous offer from Jesus that he will pay it all for you. Jesus went to the cross to take that wrath in the place of all who trust their lives with him, who give up control of their lives to this rescuer. So the amazing news is that Jesus offers to every single one of us to take it for us. But but the option is there if you want to take it for yourself. It's not an option the Bible recommends at all. Because here in the reaction of these guards is, is a glimpse a glimpse of what it would be like to come before the living God without protection from Jesus. And this is just before his angel, not himself. There is a justifiable fear in this life. It is to come before God without the protection of Jesus. Now, before we move on in the account, there's perhaps a few of us here this morning who are thinking, you know, 
This is one of the things that has turned me off to Christianity. It manipulates people according to their fears and their phobias. Bertrand Russell, the English philosopher who was born 150 years ago this week, believed that all religion is the product of fear and phobia. Here's what he wrote. Religion is based, I think, and mainly, uh, primarily and mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Now, Russell was right about two things here. He was correct in recognizing that human beings are fearful beings. There is no one here who doesn't wrestle with the fear of something. And it could be said we, we feel we have good reasons to be afraid. So I intimated at the beginning of the sermon, even if we're not afraid of angels, there are plenty of other things to happily fill the gap. It's easy to name just a few more of them. There's, for some of us, the fear of failure, fear of intimacy, the fear of heights, fear of flying, it's a fear of spiders. Our youth leader in Dublin lived in a coach house right behind our house, and it was a coach house beloved by spiders. Rachel, our youth worker, was uh, fiercely afraid of spiders, which meant that every so often, Tara would become Tara the Terminator to get rid of the spiders for Rachel. Actually, earlier when I was preaching this to Tara, she wanted me to clarify that she didn't actually kill the spiders. She had some contraption that kept them alive, took them out of the garden, but... I still like Terror the Terminator as a phrase, so I'm, I'm sticking with it. There's the fear of the dark. This fear is addressed humorously in the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. Calvin is certain that as soon as his parents are out of sight and the lights are off, there's a, some monster drooling under his bed. So with his fertile imagination at a moment's notice, just the, the flick of a switch, he goes from world-class superhero to the local under-the-bed monster's supper. And then much more seriously, there is for some of us the fear of what might escalate with Russia's war on Ukraine. There's a fear of terrorism. There's a fear right now of the ongoing impact of inflation. And those are all real things that we have to grapple with. There's the fear of the future. There's the fear of the unknown. And then there's the fear of all fears, the sum of all fears, the fear of death. And the way that some of us try to deal with that greatest of fears is just to kind of joke about it. It's Woody Allen's way, famous quote, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But whatever your fears, they are very hard to shake because all of us are afraid of something. But the other thing that Bertrand Russell was correct on is that Christianity offers a remedy for fear. Now, you can ignore that remedy, scorning it as playing to our fears. That's what Russell did. He wanted nothing to do with it. But let me suggest that such an offer of a rem remedy would only be manipulative if it created fears out of nothing, which it then would offer to fix. But if the fear is already there, if it already exists, it's not manipulative to point out its remedy or its solution, which brings us in the passage to our second point, the unnecessarily fearful. Look at verse 5. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. 
Now, some of you who were here last week may have been trying to figure out how this incident with one angel sitting on the stone outside the tomb speaking with a number of women fits with what we read last week about Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb, looking into the tomb and seeing the angels in the tomb. It's actually worth noting that the gospel writers never seem concerned to try to fit the first-hand accounts together. It can be done, and a number of the books, a number of books on the resurrection do so, but I actually take it as an indication of the historical reliability of these documents that the gospel writers' accounts are allowed to stand alongside one another without someone having tried to force them all into the same narrative straitjacket. But lest any of you think that's a cop-out by the preachers he tries to avoid having to deal with the issue here, let me suggest a simple explanation of how Matthew's account of several women meeting one angel and John's account of one woman meeting two angels are both true and accurate. And, and it's really not that complicated, that while Mary Magdalene and the other women arrived together, upon seeing the stone rolled away, we read from John that Mary Magdalene immediately jumped to the conclusion that Jesus' body had been taken by someone that prompts her then to leave the scene to go back to the disciples, which leaves the other women still at the tomb for the encounter that we read of here in Matthew's gospel. An encounter that begins with the angel saying to the women literally, don't you be afraid. In other words, the guards have every reason to be afraid, but not you. As far as you're concerned, you don't need to be afraid. Do you know this is the most frequent command in the entire Bible that around a hundred times from the beginning of the Bible to the end, we saw one in Genesis 15 verse 1 in our words of encouragement, hundred times there, people are instructed not to fear, not to be afraid. Here's a book whose author clearly understands and knows our hearts. He knows how quickly our hearts turn to fear how prone we are to be afraid of our circumstances, of other people, of danger. And over and over again, God or his representatives tell us, you don't need to be afraid. As far as the angel was concerned, the women here were unnecessarily fearful. And not only is the command not to be afraid the most frequently uh, frequent command in the Bible, it is actually year after year one of the most frequently referenced parts of the Bible. The Bible app each year announces the most searched for red bookmarked verse on their app. For 2021, it was Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. However, right behind it, and indeed the most read verse of 2020, which upon reflection makes a lot of sense, was Isaiah 41, verse 10, do not be afraid for I am with you. Now the question, of course, that has to be asked is, well, okay, but why? Why shouldn't I be afraid in this or that situation? Because it certainly fears, feels right now like there are reasons for fear. Well, for these women, we get two answers to the why question as to why we don't need to be afraid, and they come from two separate individuals. And in those responses comes the answer to our fears. Look again at what the angel says to the woman in verses 5 to 7. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The angel consoles the women because he understands why they might very well be afraid right now. Their friend and their master had been crucified, had been buried. Now the body was gone. But he tells them, no, there's no need for you to be afraid. The reason Jesus isn't in the tomb is because, not because the body has, has been stolen. It's because Jesus has actually risen from the dead, just as he told you he would. And the angel tells them that twice, just to make sure they get it. And then he even provides tangible evidence by inviting them to come in and see where Jesus had been lying. There was now no reason for them to be afraid, no reason to fear loneliness, because now their friend had returned to life. No need to fear loss, because what they had lost had now been recovered. No need to fear grief, because now the angel had announced to them great news of joy. And no need to fear death. Because Jesus, who had died, had now defeated death and come to life again. It was this resurrection and its promise of eternal life that gave courage to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was executed at the age of 38 for his role in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Listen to these words preached by Bonhoeffer as it became increasingly clear in his mind that his words and his actions were going to cost him his life. He wrote, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick for that hour, waiting and looking forward joyfully to being released from bodily existence. That life only begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Why are we so afraid when we think about death? Death is only dreadful for those who live in dread and fear of it. Death is not wild and terrible, if only we can be still and hold fast to God's word. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. So as we saw last week, the quote from George Herbert, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. There is no need to fear death because Jesus, who died, has defeated death and is alive again. And Matthew then tells us that the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Isn't that such an honest assessment of where these women were right at this moment? They have a real joy at this news, but there's still this bit of fear there. And we're not told why they're still afraid. Maybe while the thought of Jesus not being dead obviously thrilled them, there was something frightening about a man who had just literally risen from the dead. Perhaps a bit like the reaction of the disciples after Jesus calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4. If you remember, in the midst of the terrifying wind and waves, the disciples, they're afraid that it's curtains for them. They're afraid they're going to perish. 
And then after Jesus calms the storm, Mark tells us that the disciples, if anything, were filled with even greater fear as they contemplated who this was with them in the boat who had power even over nature. But here after Jesus' resurrection, as the woman experienced joy, but also still fear, we again see the heart of God, the heart of Jesus to those who love him and follow him. Because the fear hadn't fully gone away, look what happens next in verses 9 to 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus all of a sudden appears and meets with the women and says literally rejoice, which was further encouragement to do what they'd already begun to do. And then he repeats the angel's message, don't be afraid. But do you notice there's a difference between the angel's message and that of Jesus? The angel tells them not to be afraid and then gives them a specific reason. Jesus here doesn't list any reasons for why the women need not be afraid. You know why? Because he is the reason. He's standing right there. Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, stood before them as the answer to all their fears and the answer to all our fears. So what's the takeaway from this passage? What's today's sermon in a sentence? It's short and sweet. Never fear. Jesus is here. Never fear, Jesus is here. That was Jesus' message to the women, and it's his message to us. The answer to your fears and my fears is that Jesus is here. He's not dead. He's risen. He's alive. Bertrand Russell said in that earlier quote that he believed that Christians were people who were looking for an elder brother to stand by them in their troubles. Well, he was absolutely right about that. Because life is scary at times. And death is a scary proposition. And all of us in that sense need a a big brother to save us and to be with us. And Jesus came into this world as that ultimate elder brother to save us and to be with us. And if, as we see here, he's the answer to all the big fears we experience. Fear of abandonment. Fear of an unknown future. Fear of death. Then he's also going to be the answer to your, to your and my smaller little fears as well. Never fear, Jesus is here. So how do you apply this uh, in this coming week when the inevitable fears will arise? Let me just suggest one avenue of application. I'll leave you to uh, apply it in, uh, uh, cross-apply it to whatever situation you might face this week. But let's say for the sake of argument, You get a call from your boss tomorrow morning that she wants to see you on Tuesday morning, first thing in her office. She doesn't tell you what it's about. You omit to ask her when she calls you after you hang up. For various reasons, you don't think you should really call her back to ask her. And so guess what? For the rest of the day, into the evening, and as you go to bed, you're worried. You're afraid. All sorts of scenarios run through your heads. You try to think of what you might have done wrong this past week, you, you might, how you might have crossed her. You even start to go down the route of wondering if you're about to get fired. And then as your head hits the pillow late Monday night, you remember someone somewhere saying, never fear, Jesus is here. 
And you think to yourself, okay, well, how can that help me right now? And so you reflect on the fact that Jesus, your ultimate elder brother, had the power to defeat death, to die and rise again. That's a pretty spectacular power. And if he has power to defeat death, then he has power to influence and direct your meeting with your boss the next morning. He has a power and an authority that, that far exceeds that of anyone else in this world, including your boss. So that whatever happens that next morning, Jesus is committed to steering the course. If he has power over death, he has power in your meeting. But to deal with your fear, you need to take a second step as well as recognizing his power. It's one thing to recognize that someone has infinite power, but how do you know that he'll use that power for you? How do you know that his power is for you and not against you? And the answer is because this is Jesus, who prior to rising from the dead had gone to his own death on a cross for you. Because he loves you. He loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than your spouse loves you, or your children love you, or your parents love you. He loves you such that he died for you, took hell for you, so that you would not have to. And if you have trusted your life with him, he couldn't be more for you if he tried. So here's Jesus, powerful enough to defeat death. Loving enough to die in your place to pay for your sins. And as you drift off to sleep, you say, Jesus, I thank you that I can trust you with this meeting tomorrow. I don't know what will happen. It may be good. It may be bad. But I do know I don't need to be afraid. You are all powerful and all loving. I will not fear. I've greatly appreciated the Saturday morning creed in the current daily prayer project. It's adapted from the Easter sermon of the 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom. Here it is. Let no one mourn that they have fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Friends, never fear. Jesus is here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for each account we have of your life, both before your death and your post-resurrection life. You are the ultimate counselor. You know the perfect words. You know the hearts and minds of people. You know our hearts and minds. And so we thank you for this story, for this reminder of what you have done for us in dealing with with our sin and bringing us to a place where we need have no fear. The clearer we see you, Jesus, the more we see of you, the more we gaze upon you, the less our fears grow and growl and grab our hearts. And for that, we thank you in your name.
Amen.